Al Jazeera podcast. Hi, everyone. Malika here. September 30th marks International Podcast Day. And we're turning the mic on you, our listeners, so we can feature your voice on the show. We want to hear what you like about the take and why you listen. Head to this episode's description for a link to record a voice message with your answer, along with your name and where you're listening from. We'll be featuring those messages on our social media accounts and some of our episodes next week. And now, here's today's show. Amazing. It's amazing. We're so grateful to be together after eight years. There were hugs and tears Monday and Tuesday as prisoners freed by Iran and the U.S. saw their families for the first time. The nightmare is finally over. Five Iranian citizens and five U.S. citizens were released in the highest level diplomatic efforts between the two countries in years. This is U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Just a few minutes ago, I had the great pleasure of speaking to Americans who are now free. The swap coincided with Iranian President Ebrahim Raisi's visit to New York to address the United Nations General Assembly. That same day, he spoke about the deal. I believe that if there was no miscalculation on the part of America and Western countries, this could have happened much sooner. So, after years of U.S.-led sanctions and tensions, are the U.S. and Iran moving closer to a diplomatic thaw? I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The atmosphere at Doha Airport today, it was kind of incredible, actually. Al Jazeera correspondent Imran Khan was at Doha Airport in Qatar on Monday, where the U.S. prisoners flew before returning home. Imran was there as the promise of a swap became a reality, starting with a major financial transaction, releasing frozen Iranian money. It began with a lot of Qatari officials, a lot of the Americans and various people from the embassy and the State Department all kind of glued to their phones and sort of racing around. Now, this whole thing was triggered by the transfer of $6 billion. So that needed to happen first. That was money that was in South Korea, seized by the US under sanctions law. South Korea then had to send that to Switzerland. Switzerland then had to send that to a bank in Qatar. Once that had happened and the Qataris confirmed receipt, then everything else could happen. But there was a clear sense of excitement building through the day from the American side, particularly once they realized that the transfer had taken place and they were kind of glued to the Iranian news sites once they realized that the prisoners were being transferred to Mehrabad Airport. That's in Tehran. Al Jazeera correspondents there have been covering news of the swap since it was first announced in August. My name is Dorsa Jabari. I'm a correspondent for Al Jazeera English, and I've been based in uh, Iran on and off for over a decade now. This is a significant event. I mean, 10 people have been freed from prison. How did this deal come together? It is the biggest prisoner exchange in Iran's history with the United States. 
This deal came together with the help of Oman, Qatar mainly, and the willingness of both sides to really bring a resolution to this saga that's been ongoing. This was a deal that took two years to facilitate. There was a lot of back and forth, and the Qataris really did a lot of the heavy lifting between the two sides that don't speak to each other and haven't since 1979, since the revolution in Iran. As the Americans made their way from Tehran to Doha to Washington, D.C., Al Jazeera correspondent Heidi Jo Castro was at Dulles Airport waiting for the former prisoners to arrive. The plane landed at a nearby military base. It's now 5.30 a.m. Tuesday, and we finally have news that the plane carrying the five Iranian-Americans have landed on U.S. soil. This flight was really kept under wraps by the U.S. government. It was apparently a government-chartered flight, so it, it didn't appear on any flight trackers. And it's likely an indicator of just how sensitive the U.S. government considers this final, crucial step of a very delicate and complex deal. So, Dorset, let's talk about the people who were released. The five Iranians were all nonviolent offenders. The five Americans, all wrongfully imprisoned, at least according to the U.S. Can you tell us a bit about some of them and why they were detained in the first place? Sia Maknamazi is probably one of the most well-known detainees, or was, because he's been in prison eight years. He was arrested in 2015 on charges of espionage and spying for the U.S. government. Then the ordeal that he went through, he, his father went to Iran to see him after he was arrested. His father was then also arrested. So it was a very, very trying case. He did a few interviews while he was in Evan prison including with CNN's Christian Amanpour. Siamak Namazi is an Iranian-American businessman imprisoned in Iran. He spoke to me over the phone from inside the notorious Avin prison, giving us a first-hand look at the desperation of foreign nationals, dual citizens detained in that country. The others that came after him, the other four, they, we don't have the identity of two of them. The three that we do know were arrested in 2015 and 2018, all on espionage charges. The five Iranians in the United States are slightly different. Their charges range from working for the Iranian government, basically being an Iranian uh, spy and an agent of the intelligence, of the Iranian intelligence community, and then also breaking U.S. sanctions because there's a lot. There's over... um, 4,000 U.S. sanctions on Iran. Mm. And if you break them, some of them, the punishment is prison or, you know, suspended sentences. Two of them have returned to Tehran. I just saw one of them. He was greeted at the airport by his family. The other three, we believe, will remain in the United States. Um, They will not be coming back. So that's the five in the U.S., and the five in Iran. Very different ordeals, but nonetheless, ordeals all around. Okay, so five prisoners from each side now coming home, but it's not a straight swap. Part of this deal is that Iran gets money back that's been frozen, but there's an interesting wrinkle to how that money will be distributed. Can you explain how this will work? Yes, well, I think first it's important to point out two things. 
One, Iran has said that the money being released has nothing to do with the prisoners being released. They're distancing themselves from the criticism that this is um, basically hostage diplomacy, as it's been called. Whatever the case may be, hostages have been released, money has been released. They, it's happening simultaneously. So there are sanctions on Iran's oil and gas sales. So any country that purchases Iranian oil cannot pay for it directly with U.S. dollars through the international monetary systems because it's sanctioned, Iran is not part of it, and so on and so forth. So there were countries that were exempt from this sanction because they were so heavily reliant on Iranian oil, they couldn't just stop overnight purchasing it. Iraq, South Korea were the top two. So Iran kept selling them the oil, but they couldn't get their money for it. The money has been accumulating over the years now. And that's what is now Biden signed the special waiver allowing this money to be released. So the money went from South Korea to Switzerland and then from Switzerland to two banks in Qatar, where it will remain. It's not going to be transferred to a bank in Iran. Iranians will have access to this money in Qatar to purchase things that are deemed to be humanitarian goods. And the purchases have to be approved by American officials. So they have a very tight grip on this bank account. It's interesting that you said that, that Iran was trying to distance itself from this idea of hostage diplomacy. Um, because I know this deal is pretty controversial in the U.S., especially with Republicans who say just that. Today, uh, five American hostages are on their way home from unjust detention in Iran. Unfortunately, the deal that secured their release may very well be the latest example of President Biden rewarding and incentivizing Tehran's bad behavior. Does that go both ways? How does something like this resonate domestically in Iran? Uh, in terms of the prisoner swaps, um, most people think it's always good for these dual nationals to be released because they they understand the pressure it puts on Iran as a, as a country. It's stifling uh, and, you know, Iranians are very open to foreigners. It's a very tourist-friendly country. So when things like this happen, the arrests of foreigners, it really puts a, a strain on the general public and they are concerned about the perception of the outside world when it comes to Iran. In terms of money being released, the average Iranian doesn't really care. They don't know how much money Iran has that's been frozen overseas. They don't see the difference it will make in their daily lives when it's released because the money, you know, like I said, it's going to be spent on very specific things. After the break, what a deal between Iran and the U.S. could mean for bigger changes in the Middle East. The Inside Story podcast dissects, analyzes, and helps define major global stories. We get into the details with experts who explain how policies affect people. The Inside Story podcast by Al Jazeera. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Dorset, in terms of the foreign policy, is there something we can read into about the timing of this happening right as everyone's gathering in New York for the UN? Absolutely. This was 100% a very carefully orchestrated sequencing of events that was to match Raisi's visit to the United Nations General Assembly. 
Every year, this is the time of year when world leaders come to New York and speak in the UN General Assembly. It was almost poetic for him to land in New York and for these prisoners to land in, uh, become free and land in Doha simultaneously. And also, two days earlier, it was the one-year anniversary of Massa Amini, who died in police custody last year after she was picked up by morality police. So there was a lot riding on the Raisi government for things to go as they did and to happen in the sequence that they did for it to look as um, good as it did. Okay, let's stay with, with the Iranian government. This is a government that has been described as particularly hardline, and it, it certainly has engaged in extensive repression domestically. Should people be surprised at this type of pragmatism we're seeing here in the realm of diplomacy? No, I think it's expected when there is a lot of pressure um, domestically. Um, I, I think one of the reasons we've seen this rapprochement between Iran and a number of countries, including Saudi Arabia, um, is as a direct result, I think, of the internal problems this government has seen since the death of Massa Amini. Her death sparked this pouring of feelings by people, not only about the morality police and the hijab laws, but about the state of the country's well-being, its economy, climate issues, like a slew of problems. So this gave Raisi's government an opportunity to focus their attention on um, foreign policy issues, which could silence that internal opposing voices to a certain degree, basically. Yeah. So we saw the historic deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia brokered by China in, in March. And just a few weeks ago, the new Saudi ambassador presented his credentials to the foreign ministry, and he's been holding court in Tehran in, in his new official capacity. Wow. So it's uh, like the rules of political gravity are the same everywhere. When politicians struggle domestically, they seek success abroad in the foreign policy arena. And it sounds like what we're seeing here. I mean, you have these two things happening. You have uh, rumors of normalized relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, and then this normalization or this reshuffling of Iran and Saudi Arabia's relationship. Do you think that this could be the first step in what could be something much larger brewing in the region? I think in the region, possibly, but I really don't see Saudi Arabia establishing ties with Israel. I think that will be very unlikely given they've just mended their relationship with Iran. And they would, I think they know that if they do that, their relationship with Iran will suffer tremendously because that's one area where it's a red line for the Iranians. I think there is definitely shifts within like geopolitical shifts in this region. We saw a period of really heavy turmoil over the past few years. The U.S. and Iran have been at each other for a while now, starting with Trump's decision in 2018 to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. That led to the reimposition of U.S. sanctions designed to cripple Iran's economy, and Iran retaliated by resuming uranium enrichment. So I think these moves help ease those tensions, for sure. But I think looking outside of this region, Iran's relationship with the United States is not going to be fixed by this one exchange. So big picture, in terms of the U.S.-Iran relationship, 
We pretty much know what both sides want. The U.S. wants to stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons, and Iran wants an end to Western sanctions. Are we any closer to either of these after this deal? Absolutely not. No. Okay. I think this this is just a, a positive event that occurred with the the help of the Qataris. But in terms of amending this very toxic relationship Iran has with the United States, no, their history goes back decades. And uh, this one incident is not a measure of um, anything being remedied in terms of their broken relationship. I think Iran continues to push forward with their nuclear program despite sanctions. And they truly believe their nuclear program, aside from research and medical purposes, it's a deterrence. So that's not going to change. And uh, the United States will continue to put pressure on Iran. They believe Iran to be a destabilizing influence in the region, and that's not going to change. So I think the hostilities will continue. This is just a lull in those hostilities. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by David Enders and Faranisa Kampana with Amy Walters, Zaina Badr, Ashish Malhotra, Chloe K. Lee, Khalid Sultan, Miranda Lynn, Sonia Bagat, Sari Al-Khalili, and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.